0: Welcome to the Reach Podcast with your teacher, Pastor Taylor Gabbard. Tonight, we're going to talk about what it means to be exposed. Um, Being exposed is never a good thing. Uh, It always happens when you least expect it. I might be dating myself here. How many of you know the code word XYZ? Yeah, mostly guys. Okay, a couple girls. Uh, It's like the most terrifying phrase you can ever hear when you're in a public setting, right? It means examine your zipper, right? So if you get that whispered to you, there's like a, oh, no, okay, well. And it's because in that moment, you're exposed. And that's the thing about being exposed. It's terrifying. The way that we respond to things in life... Shows, it exposes what's on the inside. When we react to things, you can clearly see what's on the inside coming out. If I say, hey, stop staying up until 2 a.m. and then complaining that you can't wake up on time to have your quiet time, those of you that flinched exposed yourself, right? Or how about if I said, hey, Don't spend two hours a day on TikTok and then tell me that you don't have time for a quiet time. Now everyone's like real still, like not me, couldn't be me, right? So the reality is when you respond by flinching, by feeling uncomfortable, there's an exposure there. You feel it. We can do this with names of God too. There's a exposure of what you believe about God based on how you respond to things you know about God, right? If I tell you that Jehovah Jireh is the provider, then you have an opportunity to either respond by giving more, being more generous because you know that your Father will provide for you, or you can respond by not believing that. You can expose yourself and be stingy and hoard and Get what's yours. If I tell you that the father is El Roy, that he sees you, you can go to him in moments of distress when you need most of all to be seen, or you can hide in dark places and self-medicate. You can pretend that he doesn't see you, and that exposes you. If I tell you that he is Jehovah Shalom, the God of peace, you have the opportunity to act fearlessly in your life or be crippled by total anxiety. But how you respond to who God is exposes what you believe about him. See, what comes out of me is evidence. It's exposing my belief system. When I lose my temper, it's because I'm insecure in myself. When I lie, it's because I don't trust God with outcomes. My response to the world around me says more about me than it does about the world. In James chapter 3, verse 6, it says, And the tongue is fire in the very world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our body parts as that which defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of, your, of our life. And it is set on fire by hell. See, the tongue reveals who we are on the inside. Matthew 15, 11 says, it's not what goes into a person that defiles him, but what comes out. See, it's what's inside of you that's the problem. And when you're exposed, it's when you get to see truthfully, plainly, what's inside of you. If you've ever been around me, and you've heard you've heard somebody use the phrase EGR, you probably know how much I hate that phrase. EGR is a phrase that means Extra grace required. You know when we use that phrase? When somebody bothers us, we say that person needs extra grace. What a condescending message. That's the person that needs extra grace. You know what what term I prefer? I prefer spiritual sandpaper. Why? Because God's using them to smooth off my rough edges. It makes me the problem. I'm the problem, not the other person that's bothering me. The fact that I'm bothered is something about me that's being exposed? In the Bible, there's a story where two women come to King Solomon, one of the wisest of all of all men, and and they're arguing over a child, and they're each saying the child is theirs. And Solomon, uh, with the wisdom that God had given him, he says, "Bring me a sword, and we'll cut the child in two, and and we'll give half to each." What happens? If you're familiar with this story, one woman says, "That sounds fair." And the other woman says, just give, it, give the child to her. And what happened? They exposed themselves. In that moment, it was easy to tell who the child belonged to. They were exposed. We're going to do a four-part series in Malachi called Exposed. See, God sent a message to his people through Malachi. It's a dialogue. It's a back and forth between God and his people. And what you're going to see in this dialogue is the people of God expose themselves by their responses to God's loving message. You've often heard me say that we are responding or reacting to the gospel. You don't go get the gospel. It comes to you, and then you respond to it. You receive it and repent and confess the lord or you reject it but you are responding to the good news that you've been told when you comprehend how much jesus loves you and saved you from it causes a reaction it exposes your heart here's my question is the gospel for you a free ticket to heaven as long as you stay on like on god's good side you just have to make sure you don't mess it up as long as you don't mess up too bad The gospel let you skate right into heaven, or is the gospel something that causes you to have complete repentance and dependence on the name of Jesus Christ? Is the gospel for you not that Jesus is going to let you into heaven, but that heaven is heaven because Jesus is there? That is a big difference, and it will expose why you're trying to be there. The book of Malachi, it happens sometime after the Ezra Nehemiah uh, part of the story, uh, and here's here's what's happened, right? So a lot of people in the Ezra Nehemiah books have returned from exile, and the temple has been rebuilt, and this uh, the book of Malachi happens sometime after that, like a good enough amount of time after that that we see immediately something has gone wrong. See, if you go read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, there's like this anticlimactic end where the temple is rebuilt and and just kind of like nothing happens. It's just a building all of a sudden. And the the Israelites who remember the first temple, they're weeping because they remember the glory of the Lord that was at the first temple. So now, some years later, the people of Israel are having this, this existential crisis where they're going, well... we're promised all these good things and we got the temple and supposed to be god's chosen people and have all these blessings supposed to be a messiah like what gives where is all of it you ever feel like that like okay christianity like someday heaven and and jesus and god it's gonna be great but like blah like what am i doing right now like where is all of it right and so there's this this crisis that comes of like what do i do until then why don't we already have what God has promised? And the assumption that the Israelites make here is that God doesn't care. He isn't watching. They actually go a step further. They think that he lied or that he failed. Right? So the people of Israel are projecting this, this discontentment in their life onto God, and God is going to answer. We don't know much about Malachi himself. Uh, He's really just the middleman of the conversation. He's he's passing, you know, messages in class back and forth. And he's going to lay out for us the problems that God sees, the problems that the priests aren't leading the people and that the people are ignoring God and blaming God for their economic and social troubles. He's going to give us, after the problems, the answers. He's going to say the answer is renew your commitment to the Lord's instruction. You're having economic problems? Obey God with your money. You're having social problems? Obey God with how you treat people. It's pretty plain and simple, cut cut and dry, right? He's going to say, first, renew your commitment to the Lord, and then worship the Lord. Actually praise Him, because He is great. And then he's going to say, why? First of all, because the Lord loves you. The Lord has been faithful to you. He has chosen you. You're His children. And being His children means you're each other's family. So when you treat each other with disdain, you are fighting God's other children. He's going to say, the the last reason that you need to figure out where you stand in relation to this is that you have a limited amount of time. God is coming back, and when He's coming back, He's going to sort out the followers from the fakers. And once He does that sorting out, there's no going back. It's settled in that moment. So the first thing we're going to see is this heart effort. The first chapter, God is simply going to say, I love you. I love you. And in this first chapter, as a reaction to, I love you, we are going to see it reveal so much about the Israelites. Look at Malachi chapter one, starting in verse one, the pronouncement of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? "'Was Esau not Jacob's brother?' declares the Lord. "'Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. "'And I have made his mountains a desolation "'and given his inheritance to the jackals of the wilderness. "'Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, "'but we will return and build up the ruins. "'This is what the Lord of armies says. "'They may build, but I will tear down, "'and people will call them the territory of wickedness "'and the people with whom the Lord is indignant forever.'" And your eyes will see this, and you will say, the Lord be exalted beyond the border of Israel. He says, I have loved you. I want you to see there is a right response to the reality that God loves us. It can be, and I needed that reminder. Times are tough, and it's good to know that God cares about me, loves me, and he's so great that if he loves me, he's not going to abandon me to what I'm going through. There's also another response that is, man, I don't deserve that. I don't deserve that love. I should worship him because he has loved me in spite of myself. But notice their response. Their response is the equivalent of, how so? When did you love me? Prove it. They throw it back in God's face. It exposes who they are. And and I want to point out to you, uh, God's response here, it seems disjointed. If you don't understand the context, he starts talking about Jacob and Esau and and this country nearby. So we need a little bit of context what's going on around them. See, Edom Edom is uh, descendants of Abraham, just like Israel. They were the next-door neighbors in the, in the promised land, and they, they were not chosen to bring about the Messiah. See that, that phrase, Jacob, I loved, Esau, I hated? It's an idiom. when In the Bible, when we see I loved one thing and I hated another, it's a preference statement, right? But it's not an overdone term, right? If you missed out on the opportunity to be the people that brought about the Messiah, you could make that the equivalent of being hated. It means not preferred but it's a pretty big miss. The people of Israel were the luckiest people on earth. They got chosen to bring about the Messiah. They were also, as we see in Romans, the people who received God's word and knew what God wanted before anybody else. It was a huge privilege. It made everybody else, by contrast, look hated. What we're going to see is that because Edom rejected God, they got wiped out. See, instead of saying, man, we're right next door to God's chosen people, the Messiah is going to be there. We, we, we got front row seats. Instead, they became rivals. They spurned God's mercies because God blesses Edom for quite some time, and instead they turned against his people and against God. What is God's point here? He looks at Israel and he says, I have disciplined you, but I judged them. This is a very, very different reality. See, when God disciplines us, he disciplines us because he loves us. You know what judgment is? It's when he leaves you. These are very, very different realities. And they are complaining about God's loving discipline And right next door is a group of people that has just been judged. See, that word love in verse 2, it means a loyalty or a faithfulness. Uh, The the way it's been described uh, by scholars is a passionate desire to be intimately united and a conscious acting on the other person's behalf. That's how God has loved Israel. He has a passionate desire to be intimate with them and act on their behalf. And they've said, when, where, how. In verse 5, it says that they will see the Lord be exalted beyond the border of Israel. Do you know what that means? That means that God is God of everything, He's bigger than your circumstances. See, the God that Israel served wasn't just God within the border of Israel. See, in ancient times, gods were just gods within the borders of usually their city, no no more than their nation. But they had a God that was God of everything, God outside of their borders, bigger than their circumstances. Now, I want to point out to you that these Israelites are complaining because they don't have enough. Things are not going well. But let's go back several hundred years before the exile and see the Israelites who spurned God because they had too much. They forgot who God was because they had everything they needed and they forgot the only thing they needed was God. Here's the point of this. The problem is not your circumstances, it's your heart. Your circumstances will change your entire life. The question is, how is your heart responding to the reality of who God is since He will never change your entire life? Look at verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I'm a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of armies to you, the priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? He says, if you're my child, if I'm treating you like a child, why aren't you treating me like a father that loves and cares and is taking, and taking care of you? Instead, all I'm getting from you is disrespect. See, the, re- the right response here is repentance. The right response here is to buckle at the knees from the accusation of God at disrespect to him and say, be my father, love me. You know what they do instead? They respond to something that John much, much later will, will say in First John. In First John chapter 1, verse 8, it says, If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. In verse 10, it says, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. He says, You've disrespected me. And they say, How? We haven't done anything wrong. We don't have any sin. We're keeping all the regulations. That phrase, to despise my name, think about it like this What are we? We are Christians, we bear the name of Christ. We are in the name of Jesus. To despise the name of God is not only to not take it as your own, to not take it on you or to be in it, but to put yourself over it. See, the people of Israel, the chosen people, had elevated themselves above God's name. They were supposed to be God's people. They were supposed to be in his name. Under his authority, but they had decided to elevate themselves. Look at verse 7. You are presenting defiled food upon my altar, but you say, How have we defiled you? In that you say, The table of the Lord is to be despised. And when you present a blind animal for sacrifice, is it not evil? Or when you present a lame or sick animal, is it not evil? So offer it to your governor. Would he be pleased with you or receive you kindly, says the Lord of armies? But now do indeed plead for God's favor so that he will be gracious to us with such an offering on on your part. Will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of armies? See, the priests were supposed to show people how to worship God. Now, this section is is pointed at the priests, and we could make that point for a second. We have pastors... And priests in our country today who are advocating for all kinds of things that are not, not in God's word. All kinds of messages. I mean, the easy one, we are in the heart of the health and wealth gospel. We are in the, just an epicenter of this message of God is a means to your blessings right now. We are also seeing in our country at large a message from these pastors that it's okay to affirm sin, that it's okay to accept and justify whatever lifestyle you want because Jesus was just loving all the time. It's all, it just was so loving and so affirming and just whatever you want to do, that's fine, right? We can make that, that connection, but I want you to see something further than that. See, the, rea- the reality is this. We are supposed to be a nation of priests, Every believer is supposed to be a priest for a lost world, bringing them to God, bringing them to the name of Jesus Christ. So the indictment on the priests here, it can apply to each and every one of us in the same way. And what is he talking about? See, they were supposed to bring unblemished, perfect sacrifices. They were supposed to bring the first fruits, the things that were the most valuable. And he says, you're bringing the lame and the sick you're bringing the defiled. What is he saying? He's saying your offering shows your lack of effort. You're bringing God your leftovers. You're bringing God whatever you don't want. See, they look at God and they say, what's wrong with this offering? And God says, what's wrong with it? Go give it to your earthly authority. Would he accept it? Would he, would he take you in? Would your governor be like, oh, this is a, thank you so much for the gift? Oh, no? Oh, no? Okay, but you're okay with giving that to the Lord of armies. You know that, that, that name of God? It means the God of all authority. He's saying, you're okay giving this to your little ruler of your little region on earth. You, you wouldn't give it to him, but you'll bring it to the Lord of all authority? And then he immediately transitions. He says, oh, you wouldn't? Okay. He says, uh, I'm waiting for your apology. That's what verse 9 is. Go ahead. Go ahead, apologize. Let me, let me see it now, because you know that you wouldn't even give it to your little governor in your little region. I want to ask you this question. Who's getting your best effort? Is it your boss? Is it your friends? Is it your teachers? Is it yourself? See, you're making a God out of whatever you're giving your best to you are offering your effort your best your worship to whatever is god in your life if that if that if the recipient of your first fruits is not the lord god of armies you've elevated something over him you're giving him your leftovers Look at verse 10. If only there were one among you who would shut the gates so that you would not kindle fire on my altar for nothing. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of armies, nor will I accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name shall be great among the nations. And in every place, frankincense is going to be offered to my name and and a grain offering that is pure, For my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of armies. But you are profaning it by your saying the table of the Lord is defiled, and as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, see how tiresome it is? And you view it as trivial. But the Lord of armies, uh, says the Lord of armies, and you bring what was taken by robbery and what was lame or sick, so you bring the offering. Should I accept it from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of armies, and my name is feared among the nations. Verse 10, I want you to see this. He says, I wish one of you would just shut the doors to the temple and put a stop to these pointless rituals. Stop pretending it's worship. Stop coming to church and faking it. Stop being in the building and raising your hands and doing all the things and and taking the Lord's Supper, but you're not actually interested in me. And when you walk out the door, you do whatever you want until the next time it's time to come back and act holy. He says in verse 11, I deserve more. I want you, in verse 13, just replace offering with Quiet time, serving, confession. What does he say in verse 13? Is it tiresome? Is it trivial to you? Does it matter? You checking blocks? Just trying trying to maintain the status quo so God's not angry? I want you to understand something. The message tonight is not your effort saves you. That's not what I'm saying. Your effort exposes you. Where is your effort? What are you concerned with? If you receive the gospel, there will be evidence of it in your heart. Let me ask you this. What is the evidence that I love my wife? Is it that when you walk into my house, my marriage license is framed on the wall? You walk in, you look at it, and you're like, I knew he loved her, but that frame is really nice. <laughs> is that I wake up in the morning and like I pull like our vows out of my nightstand, and I'm like I haven't broken any yet, so I'm not making coffee this morning. Like it, it, it's not some kind of bare minimum set of regulations. It's not a display. Is it just that I claim her, right? Like yeah, that one comes home with me like every night or something. Like is that love? Is that what we're looking for just like these kind of attachments to God that's just like yeah, you know, I like I go to that church thing and pray sometimes. Like is that where we are with our relationship to God? See the evidence that I love my wife is that when she's upset, I'm gentle. When she's angry, I'm patient. When she's sick, I'm caring. When she's annoyed, I'm in the garage. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. And now, this commandment is for you, the priests. If you do not listen, and if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of armies, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your, blessing, your blessings. And indeed, I have cursed them already, because you are not taking it to heart. Behold, I am going to rebuke your descendants, and I will spread dung on your faces. The dung of your feast and you will be taken away with it. Then you will know that I have sent this commandment to you so that my covenant may continue with Levi, says the Lord of armies. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him as an object of reverence, so he revered me and was in awe of my name. He says, take this to heart. You know what that means? So it's not... I want to put this out there. The heart and the mind are confusing in the Old Testament because it's not the way that we look at them, right? When we look at the heart, what do we see? The Valentine's Day. Okay, wait. I got it, right? Right? So that's what we see when we see a heart. And what do we mean? Emotions. We mean warm, fuzzy feelings. That's not what this is talking about. This says take it to heart. It means to make a decision based on what you know to be true, to believe and then he says, honor my name. He's saying, believe, and then act on it. Actually live out what you've decided is true. Now, why does he talk to, why does why he focus on the covenant to Levi here? Now, there, there is a contextual reason. He's talking to the priests, and Levi was the start of the priestly line, right? So he's, he's talking about the covenant that these priests are breaking. But why does that matter to us? It is the appropriate covenant for all believers. Think about this. The Levites had a special privilege in the Old Testament. They got to be the closest to God. Everyone else had to stand at a distance, but they got to camp closer. They got to serve more often. They got to be in the presence of the Lord on a regular basis. Sound familiar yet? That's each and every one of us today. See, the covenant of Levi, it matters to us because it's God saying, come be close to me. It's the best news ever. It is the gospel that God made a way for us to be close to him. He says the offer in this covenant was life, peace, and a reaction. Life, you know that you only thrive when you're with God, the definition of eternal life is to be with God. Life apart from God is not life. It's wrath. It is miserable. He offers life. He says, peace. I want you to understand this. This one, this one is the one that should floor you. A peace offer from a perfectly just and mighty God that you declared war on that you were in rebellion to. He's offered you not only a way to be close, but to be his friend, to be at peace with him. And then he says to react by being in awe of him. The first two should cause you to worship. See, the more you understand the gospel, the more you understand how much you don't deserve that eternal life or that peace with this God that we've been in rebellion to, the more you will worship and be in awe of his name. Look at verse 6. This is, 6 through 9 is the alternative answer. True instruction was in his mouth, and injustice was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and justice, and he turned many back from wrongdoing. For the lips of the priest should maintain knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is, a messen- he is the messenger of the Lord of armies. But as for you, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by the instruction. You have ruined the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of armies. So I also have made you despised and of low reputation in the view of all the people, since you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in the instruction." The right response, it says that Levi turned many back from their wrong ways. See, he didn't just receive the gospel, he turned around and he gave it. He told the wicked to turn from their wicked ways so that God could save them. That is the call on believers, be near to God, be at peace with God, have life with God, and then bring others to Him. But the wrong answer, theirs, is to turn aside and lead others away from God. It says, so now I'm disciplining you. Don't miss this section. The offer is life life. Peace and worship. You get offered life when you deserved death because Jesus died. You get offered peace when you deserved wrath because Jesus suffered the wrath. You get offered the chance to worship instead of living in torment because in a single moment Jesus experienced the torment. That phrase about the dung on the face, I want you to see this. It was humiliation. See, Jesus didn't just come and, like, die of old age and then come back from the dead. He was humiliated and murdered by wicked men, by all men. And because he suffered that death and that wrath and that torment and that humiliation... Once for all time? We don't have to. And here's the thing. He suffered it once for all time. You were going to suffer it for all time. You were never going to be able to pay that debt. That is the rescue operation that the gospel is. I'm not asking you tonight to work harder. I'm asking you what your effort and your evidence say about your heart's reaction to the gospel. I'm asking you to fix your eyes on Jesus, on the truth of the cross, on the truth of the gospel, and let it change you. Let it affect you. Let it cause you to react to it. And and here's here's the kicker. If you react to it, The wrong way, you need to repent. You only have a limited amount of chances to react to the gospel the wrong way before you will be stuck with that. What I worship has an effect on how I act towards others. If you want to examine your heart, you look at your relationships. Look at verse 10. Do we not all have one father? Is it not one God who has created us? Why do we deal treacherously against each other, against each against his brother, so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. The first statement there is that We all have the same father. So when we attack each other, we are attacking our brothers and sisters. No child wants to see their parents fight. And then he moves on, and he says he begins to bring up a constant and repeated problem in Israel's Old Testament history. Israel was prohibited from marrying foreign women in the surrounding areas. Now, I'm not going to get into all that right now, but but suffice it to say this. They were prohibited because it was essentially just inviting sin into their houses. They were saying they were marrying these women, and these women were bringing with them all their idols and all their customs and all their worship, and I, I don't know exactly how it worked back then, but you tend to want to make your wife happy, and so she shows up with a new religion, and you're like, yeah, sure, let's do that one. Right, And so instead of being safe and insulated with the regulation that God had given them, they were capitulating to the culture around them and the religions of their new wives, the new things that they had been prohibited from getting. And God says this to them, you sold yourself back into sin and slavery. You have chosen evil and you have given it your best effort. What are you selling yourself back to? What are you giving your effort to that God has already rescued you from? Talk to somebody in this room who's experiencing freedom from something that has enslaved them. There's a path to freedom. There's a way that we can escape the idols that pin us down and choke us out. Look at verse 12. As for the man, uh, as for the man who does this, may the Lord eliminate him, uh, eliminate from the tents of Jacob, everyone who is awake and answers, or who presents an offering to the Lord of armies. And this is another thing you do: you cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and sighing, because he no longer gives attention to the offering or accepts it with favor uh, from your hand. Yet you say, "For what reason?" because the lord has been a witness between you and your and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously though she is your marriage companion and your wife by covenant but not one of but not one who has done so uh, i'm sorry but not one has done so who has the remnant of the spirit and why the one he was seeking a godly offspring be careful then about your spirit and see that none of you deals treacherously against the wife of your youth. Okay, verse 12 is really confusing. Like, if you just read that verse in passing, you're going to, like, do a double take. And you're like, wait, I'm what's happening there, right? And I looked into this. We don't even actually, like, the translation for it is so argued and debated. Uh, it's essentially like the, the, the things we have the most trouble translating into English, it's not that we don't know what they say in the Hebrew. It's that we don't know the full sense of the meaning into the English. The problem is idioms. Idioms don't translate. And so we look at this verse, and here's the best thing that I can get from it. They're using an idiom about opposites. He says, uh, everyone who is awake and answers, it essentially is an idiom that would have meant all the people. Like everyone on both ends, the ones calling out, the ones who are awake, the ones who are answering, all the people. I don't get it, but that's what an idiom is. It's a cultural thing, right? So the point is they think that that's an idiom for everybody. And what he's saying is may God eliminate everyone who is offering worship to idols and then showing up to the temple like nothing's wrong. May God eliminate all the hypocrites. And the everyone idiom is in there to say, so all y'all. He's including everybody. It's It's a group accusation. You're all unfaithful to the Lord. Verse 13, he says, you come to church and you play the victim. You want to get pity, you want people to look look at you, and you say, "Well, well, why won't God help me? And I want you to see that verse 14 is a parallel to verse 12. He says, I won't accept your offering because you've been unfaithful to me. I won't accept your offering because you've been unfaithful in your closest, most intimate human relationship to your very own wife. I want you to understand what he's saying here, right? What are the greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God. And love your neighbor, right? And he's saying, you haven't loved me. You've been unfaithful to me. And you haven't loved your wife, the person most of all that I have commanded you to love. And if you can't love the person that I have commanded you to love first and foremost, how can you love anybody else? He says, I've witnessed the way that you are treating your wives, the way that you are loving them or Lack thereof. Verse 15, he says, There are those who are still walking in the Spirit, and they are the ones who didn't act this way. And there's another confusing statement about children. I want you to understand that that statement is meant to say this. Some of you are fulfilling God's purposes for your life. Some of you are honoring marriage. Some of you are walking in the Spirit and doing the things that I have commanded of you to do and living appropriately, and some of you are inviting idols in, are being hypocrites, are pretending to be holy on the temple days. He says, examine your actions. Look at your actions, look at your relationships with each other, look at the effect your beliefs are having on your life around you, and tell me what's going on in your heart. You tell me, what does that look like? Look at verse 16. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of armies. So be careful about your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Violence and divorce, why those? They are two of the most supremely selfish and disdainful acts against other people. Think about it like this. Every human being is an image bearer of God. When you attack people who bear God's image, you are attacking God. Now let's take it to the next level. Everyone's an image-bearer of God, but God's children bear the name of Jesus Christ, which means when you attack Christians, you attack Jesus himself. This is why God takes it so seriously, the way that we treat each other. This is the year of community. And the question is, will we be the kind of community that comes in here and plays the part and is is holy when we're in the environment? Are we going to be there for each other? Are we going to love each other? Are we going to be intimate? Are we going to be faithful? Are we going to give God our best efforts? And here's the thing, it really is a group project. It really is a community event. If you have tried to live the Christian life for very long on your own, you will realize very quickly that it is impossible. It's borderline impossible in the group. But the only way we ever see growth is a part of the body, a part of the community. And we have to decide if we're going to be a community that sees each other as image bearers of God and name bearers of Jesus or if we're going to fake it every time we come in the room. X, Y, S. Examine your spirit. That is what you need to be doing with your actions. The gospel exposes us. Do you respond to the gospel with repentance and worship? Or do you respond by hiding and hurting others? That's the question. Hey guys, this is Philip Jackson, pastor of young adults at Evergreen Baptist Church. I want to invite you to come to REACH. We meet every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Evergreen Church in South Tulsa, just east of Mingo on 111th Street. The mission of Reach Tulsa is to cultivate a young adult community that's defined by real transformation and the sincere pursuit of a godly life through training in biblical disciplines, personal development, and intentionally transitioning into independence as mature members of the body of Christ. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Reach Young Adult Ministry is a part of Evergreen Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.